As we continue our series in the life and ministry of Jesus, we find ourselves this week watching Jesus at a party. Many of you have, have probably heard people say things about Jesus like, you know, Jesus loved to hang out with bad people, and he loved to hang out with the lowest of society. And this is one of the parts of Scripture where people get that rhetoric. Today's study has a lot to teach us about how we should live in the world that we're in right now. The story that we're reading today, the account, is also in two other Gospels. And I just want to let you know so you understand the flow of Jesus' life. Mark's Gospel tells us that what Jesus did next after last week's study is he went out again by the sea... And all the multitude came to him and he taught them. So Jesus' ministry is continuing to grow. It's continuing to build momentum. And it's always worth remembering that the defining characteristic of Jesus' ministry is teaching. Even more than the miracles, he's known for his teaching. But let's begin with our main text. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 27. And it says, After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And I have to tell you, tax collectors were among the most despised people in society at this time. Things have really changed. No, they haven't changed at all, right? They were viewed as sellouts to the Roman Empire, traitors, because they were generally Jews who had bought a tax franchise from the Roman government. And the amount of money that they collected from the citizenry was often inflated to their own benefit. See, the system that the Romans used was called tax farming. They would basically divide territory up into regions, and they would say, okay, northwest Galilee, we need to get, let's just come up with a figure, 30,000 drachmas from this territory right there. And they would allow people to bid on the right to collect that money as the tax collector. So you would say... Well, uh, I'll pay you, the Roman government, 5000 if you will let me collect that money. And you'd be thinking, well, what? That doesn't make sense. Why would you pay to collect money? All that would have to happen at the end of that year is you as the tax collector for that region who had the winning bid for the right to collect the money, you'd have to get that 30000 for your region to the Roman government. But you were allowed to extort even more money than that from people and overcharge them. So the idea is you might pay the Roman government 5,000 bucks for the right to collect the 30,000, but you might overcharge by 15,000 or 30,000 over the course of the year. It's a system rife for corruption, and this is the way things worked back then. And if you didn't pay your local tax collector, they could call on the Roman muscle to come and extort it from you. So Matthew, who is also Levi, worked with taxes like import duties, road usage, business license fees, and toll fees. In fact, there were even fees assessed for docking your boat in a harbor. And Levi, Matthew, is working in this area where Jesus is ministering. So it's highly likely that in his function as a tax collector, he had interacted with the four disciples Jesus had at this time, which would have been Andrew, Peter, James, and John. So it must have been a little awkward for them because there's a good chance that Levi had actually overcharged those guys. And so now they're going to have a meeting here. So keep that in mind. Jewish tax collectors would have been excommunicated from the synagogue. They would not have been allowed to be witnesses in court cases in the Jewish court system. They were basically considered dead to the Jews when they became aligned with the Romans. And Matthew's birth name is Levi. This is really interesting to me. It tells us that he's from the tribe of Levi. 
And the tribe of Levi, or the Levites, were special for one reason. God chose this specific tribe to serve him in the temple as priests. And so they would work on a rotating schedule, and each family, the man from that family, would serve for a two-week span during the year. This is what Matthew should have been doing. He was born into this. But that's not where we find him. We find him working as a tax collector, selling out his own people. And I find that extremely interesting because you have to ask the question, what happened? What happened? I mean, he's kind of set. If you read it, it was a serious thing to be in the priesthood, but it was also an awesome thing. It was a really, really great honor, and it was a pretty good life. He walks away from that. He's excommunicated from the synagogue. We know that. We know that he can't serve as a witness. We know that he's dead to his own people. So what happened? We're speculating, but I think the only logical conclusion we can come to is that somewhere along the line, he became very, very jaded. Very jaded. Maybe he looked around him and said, guys, I don't know if you're realizing this. It's been over 400 years since we've heard from God. We haven't even heard from God in my lifetime. I'm I'm not even sure that this, this God exists. Maybe he considers himself a realist and he's saying, look around you. The Romans are running our country. You can play your little games and follow all your rules and go to synagogue and be a good boy, or you can accept the reality. This is the world we live in. So I'm going to get mine. We know that he essentially chose wealth over patriotism and nationalism. I find him an incredibly interesting character because he must have been very jaded. And jaded people aren't just cynical. They're also deeply wounded. That's why they're cynical. So this is Levi. This is Matthew. Levi was Matthew's name before he became a follower of Jesus. Jesus was the one who gave him the name Matthew. Jesus had a way of seeing past all this cynicism and all this traitorous behavior in Levi's life. To this man who was considered a low life by society, Jesus gave a new name. called him Matthew. The name Matthew means gift of God is what it means. Can you imagine the moment when Jesus says to this guy who's just been hated his whole life, and the truth is no amount of money really makes up for that. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name. Your name is going to be Matthew. You're a gift of God. I can't imagine the moment when Jesus speaks that new name over Levi. And here's what I notice. I notice that Jesus doesn't say, if you live up to it, I'll give you a new name. If you earn it, I'll give you a new name. Jesus gives him a new name, and in that action, Levi, Matthew, is moved to live up to that name. And that's always how God works. That's how he works with you and me. He gave you and I a new name. He put a spirit inside of us. He didn't say, you know what, you have the potential to have my spirit inside of you if you earn it. He put his spirit inside of us. He brought us into his family. And the Christian life is about one thing. It's about doing our best to live up to what God has already given us. He says, you're mine. You're my kid. And the natural response for us should be, well, I guess I better start acting like God's kid then. That's the Christian life summed up right there. Just act like you are what you are. You're not trying to become something different. You are a child of God. Act like a child of God. That's the Christian life for you and I. We've been given a new name. Mark and Luke's Gospels both refer to him as Levi. In Matthew's Gospel, even at this point in the story, He refers to himself by his new name, Matthew. He never calls himself by his old name. I love that. 
Because it's important to remember where you came from, but it's even more important to remember where you're going. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can know this. You you are not who you were. You are not who you were. You may not be who you want to be yet, but I promise you've probably come a lot further than you think you have from the moment Jesus gave you that new name. You are not who you were. And for a lot of you, that needs to be a hearty amen. Thank you, Jesus. I am not who I was. Let's continue with our study in the, in the Word of God. It says, And he said to him, Jesus said to Levi, Matthew, follow me. That's his whole pitch. And then you should underline all of verse 28 in your Bible. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Jesus, the, the hottest name on the rabbi's circuit, the miracle worker, the teacher with authority, the rumored Messiah, comes up to this conniving, despised tax collector and says, I believe you've got what it takes to follow in my footsteps. I want you to be my disciple. I want you to be one of my guys. What, what an opportunity. Matthew doesn't even need to think about it. He left all, rose up, and followed him. Matthew's issues were out in full view of the public. He's a traitor to his own countrymen. Everybody knows it. He's hated, but Jesus offers him a new beginning. And Matthew considered Jesus worth leaving everything for. So he did. And I want us to notice the order of events here. The text implies that Matthew first made the decision to leave everything. Then he rose up and followed him. I won't bog you down with the terminology in the original Greek, but in the original language, the idea that he left all means he made a clean break with his old life. He made the decision to make a clean break, to walk away from everything, and then he rose up and followed him. And that phrase, followed him, implies a continuous state. This is what he did all the time from that point on. He followed Jesus. Matthew's clean break with his old life is what enabled him to rise up and follow Jesus. You know, often we want to do the latter. We want to rise up and follow Jesus, but we've neglected the first part of that process, leaving everything behind. And sometimes we still try to bring things with us that Jesus wants us to leave behind. The Apostle Paul would say it like this in the book of Hebrews. He'd say, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. When you give your life to Jesus, you should want to bring along with you everyone you can on that journey. We're going to see Matthew model this in the next few verses, but not everybody will join him. Not everybody will join you. There will be relationships. There will be habits. There will be lifestyle choices, entertainment choices, and more that you're going to have to walk away from because they're what the Apostle Paul calls weights that slow us down. And they're going to keep you from doing what Matthew was able to do, which was rise up. In Matthew's gospel, it records Jesus as saying this. Jesus says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. You know, for some people, the decision to follow Jesus costs them family. I always think about this letter. I follow an organization called the Persecuted Church. I love to know what's going on around the globe with believers and praying for the Persecuted Church. And it blew my mind when I read about, for the first time, these countries where 
the ministry of the gospel in this country looks like this. They find houses, secret houses. They go out and evangelize. If they evangelize someone and that person decides they want to follow Jesus, that person cannot go home that day. They can't go home. They have to go into hiding in the secret house and walk away from everything because they will be killed if anybody finds out they've become a believer. Here's what I know in that situation. Nobody has to ask that person, are you sure you're saved? Because they literally left everything. I was reading a story just about a family, mom and a dad, two kids, all gave their lives to Jesus. Can't go home. Can't go grab clothes. Can't do anything. Go into hiding. We're going to figure out where to get you where you can be safe and follow Jesus. For some people, it means leaving family. For some people, it costs them their marriage. You know, the Apostle Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, and that tells us something. To be in the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. All signs point to the fact that the Apostle Paul is married, but throughout his missionary journeys, it becomes very clear that he's single. And church historians tell us what most likely happened is Paul's wife did not convert when Paul did. She didn't want to lose her social standing. She didn't want to lose her community. Paul was a well-respected man, one of the best and brightest in all of Israel, and she wasn't ready to become nothing for the sake of the gospel. All signs point to the fact that the apostle Paul's wife left him, left him. It cost him his marriage. For some people, it costs them their wealth, and we see Matthew here getting up and walking away from his only source of income. He left everything to follow Jesus. That's what it means to understand what Jesus is really offering us. It means to say, I I don't even need to think about it. And others would say, do you know what this is going to cost you? And you're saying, do you understand what I'm gaining? You you can't put these things on scales and go, I'm gaining Christ. I'm gaining eternal life. I'm gaining everything. Whatever's on the other side of the scale doesn't compare to what's on this side of the scale. And Matthew understood that. He understood it in the truest sense. Jesus' encouragement is this. Don't be confused. In eternity, you're going to get back a hundredfold whatever you sacrifice for Jesus. Everything that we consider a sacrifice, God would say, is an investment. He's saying nothing is lost You've just gained that where you're actually going to be able to enjoy it forever, a hundredfold. Matthew chose well. We're in Luke's gospel, and it's interesting that in Matthew's own account of this moment, Matthew simply says, he arose and followed him, describing himself. He's a beautiful picture of humility. He doesn't even say of himself that he left everything. He keeps the focus on Jesus because from Matthew's perspective, whatever he walked away from, There's nothing compared to what he gained in Jesus. An interesting little note I just want to tell you about Matthew as well. In his occupation, he would have had to be skilled at something called rapid writing, tachigraphy. I'm probably butchering that word. Don't go look it up. Tachigraphy. And and it's the ability to make shorthand notation. Working as a customs and tax official, he would have been able to record entire conversations verbatim using a shorthand system of symbols. The reason this is so interesting is the Gospel of Matthew is longer than any of the other Gospels because it gives a word-by-word recounting 
of four major discourses, four major messages Jesus gave, like the Sermon on the Mount. When you read those, you're reading a verbatim, word-for-word account of what Jesus taught because Matthew was there, and there was a person there with the skill to record word-for-word what Jesus just said. It wasn't passed down through four or five people. It was notated verbatim by somebody who was actually there, who was Matthew. Let's continue in verse 29. It says, Then Levi, Matthew, gave him, Jesus, a great feast in his own house. You might want to underline that. Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. See, Matthew's response to his new relationship with Jesus is to celebrate. Other gospel accounts use the phrase tax collectors and sinners, and the term sinners was used to describe people who had no respect for the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, no respect for the rabbinic traditions, and so they were considered the most vile and worthless people in society. Tax collectors and sinners are Matthew's peer group. Nobody else is going to come to his party. doesn't matter how many invitations he sends out. They're the only acquaintances he has. And the them in verse 29 is Jesus and his disciples. In Mark's gospel, it records, for there were many at this party, and they followed him. And I just want to point something out here. Why are all these people who are called tax collectors and sinners there? Why are they at Matthew's house? Why are they at Matthew's house? Are they there for a random party? Is this just a regular social gathering? What's the purpose of this get-together? Remember, verse 29 says, Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. Who's him? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's clear that Matthew's throwing a party to celebrate his new relationship with Jesus. All of these tax collectors and sinners are there to meet Jesus. They're not there just to party. They're there to meet Jesus, and there's no confusion what this is about or who the center of attention is. It's Jesus. Matthew throws a party to introduce his friends to Jesus. I I point this out because there's a lot of Christians who will put themselves in sketchy situations with sketchy people and then say, I'm just being like Jesus. Jesus would hang out with sketchy people all the time. Jesus didn't crash their party. The party's being thrown for Jesus. It's being thrown for Jesus. You know, you're not being like Jesus just because you go to a social gathering full of people who don't care about honoring Jesus. It's not the same thing at all. What's taking place here is this. A person who had no relationship with Jesus was invited to have a relationship with Jesus, and they said yes. Their response was genuine and sincere, and that was proved by the fact this person threw a party to celebrate their new relationship with Jesus. And this person invited all of their friends and acquaintances to come and meet Jesus too. That's what happened here. And what was the result? For there were many, and they followed him. So don't put yourself in unwise, compromising, tempting, ungodly situations and then claim that you're being like Jesus just because you're surrounded by sinners because that's not what Jesus does in the Bible. Matthew said to his friends, come over to my house and meet the one who is the Messiah who's shown me unbelievable grace. We need more of that. We need more parties where we're celebrating what God has done in our lives and inviting other people to come and meet him. You know, Jesus never expected non-believers to act like believers. That's why they still liked having him around. He didn't expect them to act like believers. But Jesus still took holiness very seriously. Here's what I know. I know Jesus was not laughing at filthy jokes with these guys. 
and calling that evangelism. I know that if a sketchy situation had happened, if there had been some sketchy entertainment at this party, Jesus would have removed himself from the situation. He wouldn't have said, man, I'm just being evangelist, rubbing shoulders with the sinners, man. He wouldn't have done that. Jesus goes to social situations, one, where he's wanted. Because where he's wanted, there's an opportunity for deep and meaningful conversation. He cares about people and he wants to get into their lives. Jesus doesn't love being around sin. That's not why he's doing this. He's doing this because he loves people. And he knows that in these situations, he's going to have a chance to really get into their lives and really talk to them about their lives and who he wants to be in their lives. Jesus was very, very careful about the situations he put himself into. He showed incredible wisdom. And this is worth making a note of, that Jesus affected the people at the party in a positive way. They did not affect him in a negative way. Although he came to people as they were, he left them different than he found them. So if you find yourself in a situation or an environment where it begins to affect you more than you are affecting it, you need to get out of there. You're not accomplishing anything. But if, like Jesus, you can go into a situation and make a difference by your joy and your unmistakable testimony that God has worked in your life, then go with God's blessing. Go do it. That's awesome. But be honest with yourself about who is affecting whom and make decisions accordingly. There are places that I can't go because I know there's zero chance that I'm going to positively affect somebody. There's just no chance. There is a risk that I'm going to be affected negatively because I'm a human being. So I look for those situations where I can go and be a positive influence with people and not put myself in a compromising situation. In this culture, eating with people was significant. It was very intimate. They would do things that we wouldn't even do at a church potluck. You know, they would have like a dipping bowl with bread. You take a bite of bread, dip, eat it, dip, and everybody would be doing this from the same bowl. I mean, some of you guys, if you're doing that, you'd be like drinking hand sanitizer, you know, hoping that it would work out. But this is what they would do. So when you ate with somebody, it was symbolic that you were not ashamed to be associated with them. You were not ashamed to be seen with them. And this is startling to people who are looking on at Jesus and they're like, does he he not know who these people are? He's, He's breaking bread with them. He's eating dinner with them. And that's why the Pharisees are shocked to see Jesus doing this. It says this in verse 30. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You see, Jesus isn't telling the Pharisees that they're well. He's telling them they think they're well. I think Jesus is actually being a little bit sarcastic and cutting with them because the Pharisees thought that their religious practices made them pure and whole. The tax collectors and sinners at this party are there because they were aware that they were not. Salvation can't come to the self-righteous because the self-righteous believe they've made themselves righteous. They don't need anybody else to do that for them. Then Jesus says the same thing in a different way. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's being very cutting again with the Pharisees. They were so self-righteous that they were oblivious to the words of the psalmist, the words of Solomon, who both pointed out what the Apostle Paul would later quote in the book of Romans when Paul said, there is none righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. 
Jesus is being sarcastic when he's telling them, you know, I've come for sinners. I haven't come for the righteous. If they knew their Bible, they would know nobody's righteous. Jesus is being sarcastic. He's saying, I haven't come for the well like you. I've come for the sick like these people. I haven't come for the righteous like you. I've come for, you know, sinners like these guys. It goes totally over their heads. And this is one of those portions of Scripture that gets twisted a lot. You know, I, I constantly hear people talking about how Jesus somehow loves bad people more than good people. How Jesus loves poor people more than rich people. They say things, you know, Jesus came for the poor and the criminals and the prostitutes and the drug dealers. And that's not the dividing line of who Jesus came for. Jesus isn't political. He's not a Marxist. He's not a communist. He's not a socialist. He's not a liberal. He's not a conservative either. The dividing line is who is aware of their sinful condition and who is not. Who is self-righteous and who recognizes their need for Jesus to make them righteous. The person who recognizes that they're a sinner and is willing to turn from their sin toward Jesus, that's the person Jesus came for. It's got nothing to do with social status or wealth or morality. It has everything to do with how honest people are about who they really are. And in this instance, Jesus found a lot more honesty in the hearts of the tax collectors and sinners than he did in the hearts of the Pharisees. But understand this, you don't need money to be self-righteous. There's self-righteous homeless people too. There's self-righteous drug dealers. And there's drug dealers that know they need Jesus. The dividing line is, are you willing to recognize your need for Christ? That's the dividing line. We see a massive principle of the kingdom at work here. If you're self-righteous, you will be deaf and blind to the gospel. It will be impossible for you to get it. Jesus Christ himself can stand in front of you and say, you don't need me, you're righteous. And you'll go, you're right. I am righteous. It'll just go right over your head. If you have friends or family, co-workers or acquaintances that don't believe they need Jesus, I'll be honest, you can share the gospel with them and it probably won't matter because they haven't realized their need yet. Here's the good news. God is working to get them to the place where they will recognize their need. God is working through tragedies. He's working through trials. He's working through loss and stress to get them to the place where they recognize their need for Jesus. But all you can do in that situation is pray that God would get them there fast. That's why I always say, if you have somebody in your life that you're praying for who doesn't know Jesus and is in a crisis, you might want to think twice about praying for their crisis. A better prayer would be, God, help them to see their need for you because that crisis may be sent by God to open their eyes. And it would be better for them to be uncomfortable and in the arms of Jesus than comfortable and destined for hell. That's the truth. That's how God works. Here's why there's a reason for hope if you know people who are in those situations. Firstly, he did it for you and me. We're here because God got us here somehow. Secondly, I want to read to you a verse from the book of Acts which describes what happened in the early days of the Jerusalem church after Jesus had left the earth. It, said, it says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. They weren't ready on this day. They weren't ready on this day. They were blind and deaf on this day. But for many of them, the day would soon come when they would be ready and they would turn to Christ. And if they can do it, 
if they can be that blind and still come to faith later on, then anything is possible for any person if we'll pray. In Matthew's gospel, it records that Jesus also said this to the Pharisees. He said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, God is quoting, Jesus is quoting from the book of Hosea there in the Old Testament. The whole theme of the book of Hosea is how God's people have walked away from him. And they've, they're doing all the ceremonies. They're going through all the rituals, but they're empty. They're meaningless. And God says, I, I didn't give you this way of living so that you could go through these ceremonies. I gave you these laws to change your heart, to change the way you see things, to change the way you see me. And the whole Old Testament reveals one truth. One, we can't live up to the standard of God. And then underneath that, we realize that it's possible to go through all the motions and still have a very, very dark heart. It's possible. And Jesus is saying, listen, I care way more about what's going on in your heart than I do about you nailing the ceremony. I care much more about what's going on in your heart. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you you guys need to get this. You've got the ceremonies down, but you've got none of the heart behind it. We're going to shift gears into Jesus' next interaction. Mark's gospel tells us that the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting at this time. The the twice-a-week fast, twice-a-week fast, was a major expression of Orthodox Judaism at this time. So if you were serious, if you were spiritual, you were doing the twice-a-week fast. Even though the Old Testament law only prescribed one time of fasting, one day a year on the Day of Atonement. That's all that was in the law. But they made a ritual, they made a new law to try and be even more spiritual. So remember, John the Baptist was actually the last Old Testament prophet. He represents the old covenant, the old deal, the old way of interacting with God. He and his disciples followed the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. When Jesus arrived on the scene, John's disciples were supposed to recognize Jesus and follow him. But John the Baptist is in prison at this time, and it's pretty clear not all of his disciples have transitioned to following Jesus. Jesus taught that all other fasting outside of the Day of Atonement was supposed to be personal and private. And these guys are doing it as a public display of their own deep spirituality. I mean, they're this close to just wearing t-shirts saying, ask me about my fast, you know, while they're fasting. This is their sort of big display of spirituality. Again, even though... In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, it specifically speaks against this kind of hypocritical fasting. We're we're not exactly sure, but it seems like John the Baptist's disciples arrive at this party and start talking with the Pharisees. And then one group or the other asks Jesus a question because they're both bothered by the same thing. In verse 33, it says, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? Jesus, we fast and pray. How come your disciples don't fast and pray? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Fasting was associated with times of mourning or deep spiritual need. And Jesus is just saying, I'm here. If they need anything, they can just ask me. I'm literally here. I want them to enjoy my presence, not mourn it. And so Jesus tells us that his presence is supposed to bring joy. His presence is supposed to bring joy. Jesus is echoing the words of John the Baptist when John the Baptist said, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. 
Even according to the Talmud, the, the big book of extra-biblical laws that the Pharisees and scribes made up, even according to that, there was only one time when a Jewish man was released from all duty, even prayer. And it was during a wedding. And his only duty then was to rejoice, be happy, celebrate. That was his only job. Jesus goes on and he says in verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Taken away refers to a sudden removal. It's taken away with violence, seized, and it's a clear reference to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. He's talking about that coming time, and he's saying that the time's going to come when they're going to need to mourn, and they're going to need to fast. They're going to need to pray. Today we still fast as Jesus instructed us to, privately and humbly. There are many examples of fasting through the New Testament. It's not a thing that stopped. And we do it today as a way to hear from the Lord at times when we really need clarity from Him or we need His intervention in our lives in a profound way. But we don't mourn to fast anymore because Jesus is with us. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It says in verse 36, Then He spoke a parable to them. He spoke a parable to them, to the Pharisees and the scribes. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus explains that the purpose of parables is to share the truth, a deep spiritual truth of the kingdom of God in a way that people who genuinely desire the truth will be able to hear it and understand it, but also in a way that those who don't genuinely desire the truth will not be able to understand it. It's a way for Jesus to speak when both groups are in the room, people who genuinely desire the truth and people who don't, And he can speak this and only the group that he wants to understand it will be able to understand it. So he tells them this parable, this analogy, this rhetorical device. He says, no one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. Can't put a new denim patch on old jeans because when you wash them, it won't hold. The cloth will shrink, the stitching will rip, and the hole you're trying to patch will become even bigger. Just basic sewing technique there, really, that we all know, I think. Uh, Verse 37, he goes on and he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus gives two parables to illustrate that his gospel isn't just a continuation of the old laws, but something completely new. He's explaining the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to complete it so that He could offer us a new deal, a new covenant. And in this new covenant, you're not made right with God by living perfectly. You're made right with God by repenting and turning to Him to receive forgiveness. Jesus wants them to understand this is a completely new thing. It's not something to be patched on to the Old Covenant. It's a new covenant. The law is not going to be written on hearts instead of stone tablets. The Holy Spirit is going to live inside every believer and empower them to live for the Lord. Think of it this way. If I take an acorn and I put it on the ground and I hit it repeatedly with a hammer, it'll be destroyed, right? Be destroyed. If I bury that acorn in the ground, it'll also be destroyed. It'll be completely destroyed. But in the second case, the destruction is going to bring about fulfillment because it's going to bring forth a new new tree a whole new tree so when jesus said i've come to fulfill the law it's in the sense of a buried acorn once the law shows us that we're sinners that we need a savior its work is complete it's able to give birth to something new 
that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's the best analogy I can give. Animal skin was used to make vessels for holding wine. They're like a pouch as it fermented. So they'd put in the grape juice, seal it up, leave it in there, and it would ferment. They'd open it up, have a great time. So during that process, the fermentation process, there'd be gases released that would build up pressure, and this wine skin would stretch, and animal skin was great for it. It would stretch and tighten and harden. And you could pour it out and enjoy a good glass of wine. However, if you emptied that wine skin and started the process over again with new wine that needed to ferment, when it expanded, it would burst it because it had already expanded. It had already hardened. And Jesus uses that to explain how incompatible the old and new covenants were. He's trying to help them understand that everything they're doing, their religious fasting, their religious praying, doesn't earn them any points in the new covenant. The whole system's changing. It's about the heart now. Salvation's not about patching up the old. You become a whole new creation. You're something new. You know, nowhere in the Bible is the human heart healed. It's replaced. You receive a new heart. You become a new creation. You can't fast when you're supposed to be feasting. You can't mix an old garment and a new one. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. And then Jesus says in verse 39, And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. Jesus is just pointing something out about people. Those who had acquired a taste for Old Testament ceremonies and Pharisaic traditions were not eager to give them up for the new wine of Jesus' teaching. It would sort of be like mastering a sport and then having somebody say, that sport doesn't exist anymore. You're like, I've just perfected my technique yeah well it doesn't exist anymore you need to move on you know that there's going to be a group of people that are going to form a club and be like we're devoted to the old ways of doing this we're going to keep doing this we're going to preserve the sport for future generations you just know that would happen have you ever noticed that people reach a certain age and they just stop listening to new music or should i say they reach a certain age and when they reach this age it marks the end of the golden age of music and only the music that existed before that time was good back when rock was rock man that's when music was music every person believes they had the good fortune of living in the greatest age of music ever it's entirely dictated by our lifespan right and when i turned 32 that age ended and now i just listen to the classics man Because everything today is just, oh, oh, man. And we sort of see this same effect at work even in the church. You know, here's the pattern all over the world. There's a move of God. God moves in a group of people. He moves in a church. It's exciting. It's awesome. The church grows. Years go by. Nothing changes. The songs don't change. The paint doesn't change. God wants to do a new thing in the next generation. He wants to reach people in the way that they need to be reached. And there is war in the church. Listen, listen. As somebody who had the good fortune of living in the golden age of this church, I just want to tell you we don't need to change anything. If anything, we need to go back to what we were doing then, and then we'll get the same results that we got 30 years ago. That's the problem. We need to go even more back. And they just dig in. And then what usually happens in these situations is that church, because they're unwilling to change, will plant a church with everybody in it who's young, who wants to change, who wants the new wine, the new things God is doing. And then everybody says, praise God for kingdom multiplication. 
And all that's happened is one church has begun its death sentence. They're just counting down the years till they die because instead of passing on the baton to the next generation, instead of embracing the new wine of what God wants to do today, they say, no, we're, we're good with the old wine. So we'll just hang on to this baton. You can go get your own. That's tragic. We see it all the time and we celebrate churches being multiplied. And a lot of the time, the reality is people just don't want to change. They don't want to embrace the new thing that God is doing. You know, when we buy into something wholeheartedly, it's very, very difficult to change. Jesus is just pointing out that old habits die hard. I put on Facebook yesterday, that should be the title of the next Die Hard movie. That's a freebie right there. And and even in this observation, when Jesus is saying to these guys, when he's saying to them, you know, nobody when they have the new wine immediately says, this is awesome. They say, oh, you know, the old wine was better. When Jesus is saying this to them, he's actually being gracious. He's being very gracious because he's trying to tell them that's what you are. You're having a taste of the new wine and you're immediately saying the old is better. And Jesus is very, very tactfully trying to tell them, recognize the own bias in your heart. I know change is difficult, but you don't want to miss what I'm doing right now. You don't want to miss this new wine. Recognize the own bias in your heart. And I love what we read in Acts chapter 6 that in a couple of years, many of the priests, many of the Pharisees were actually saved. And I think that what needed to happen for some of them is they needed a couple of years to wrap their head around the fact that this was new wine and this was better. It took them a long time to let go of something they had invested their whole lives in. You know, it's much easier to get into ruts than it is to get out. Somebody once said the only difference between a rut and a grave is the length and the depth. In all of this, there's the same theme, and the theme is this. You cannot receive the new until you're willing to let go of the old. You can't receive new life until you're willing to let go of the old life. And so in closing, I want to say this. Matthew is such a wonderful example. He makes a clean break with his old life. Because of that clean break, he's able to rise up And he rises up to follow Jesus in his new life. Then he introduces everyone from his old life to Jesus. Many of them respond and begin to follow Jesus, but not all of them. And because Matthew's made a clean break with his old life, he's okay with the fact that not everybody's coming with him. He's okay with that. He knows that he can't stay where they are. In order to have new life, he has to move on. So I just want to ask some questions. Have you you made a clean break with your old life? Or are you being prevented from rising up and following Jesus because you haven't cast aside some of those weights from your old life? Is your life marked by a joy that comes from following Jesus? If not, is it because you haven't made a clean break with your old life and you haven't really received that new life? Or is it because you're an old, stretched out, hardened wineskin? I want to encourage you, in the original Greek, the word new that's used to describe new wineskins is actually the word renewed. He says you need to put new wine in renewed wineskins. When someone wanted to use an old wineskin again, they would soak it in water until it shrank and regained its elasticity. Then it could be used again. That's interesting to me, just because water is always used in Scripture as a, as a picture of the Word of God. So how do you stay useful as a believer? How, how do you not miss what God is doing today? You don't soak yourself in traditionalism. You don't soak yourself in denominationalism. 
You soak yourself in the word of God, which is timeless. You don't get your most profound truths about God from someone else. You get them from the word of God for yourself. You know, the whole Bible can be read aloud in 71 hours, 12 minutes a day for a year. Most of us will spend more time than that brushing our teeth or combing our hair. The question isn't whether or not we have time to read the God. The question is, is will we choose to read the word of God? There's only one place a believer cannot stay. A believer cannot stay put. He's both growing and expanding in his walk or he is shrinking and weakening in his walk. Your faith is either more radical today than it was last year or it's less radical than it was last year. And if we're determined together to soak in God's word, we're going to experience a continuing renewing, new discoveries, new understanding, a constant softening, and the Lord will be able to pour new wine into us to keep it fresh. I realize in my own life, when my relationship with God feels stale, it's never because God is lacking. It's because I've denied him opportunities to fill me up again. Then I stand there and I say, well, just feels like things are stale and old with God. And I haven't been in his word. And I haven't been in prayer with him. I haven't been in relationship with him. That's always the way it is. The problem is never God. I've never once encountered a situation where when you got to the bottom of it, you said, yeah, I think the problem here is God isn't coming through for you. It hasn't happened one time in my whole life. It's always been something in my own life, something in my own heart. Let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And the first thing I just want to ask is, if you're a believer this morning, if you've ever left everything to follow Jesus, if you consider him worth more than anything else, if you've had that moment where you say, you know, no matter what it costs me, I have to have Jesus. I have to have him. I have to have him. If for the first time today, You've come to that place where you say, I need Jesus. I need him more than I need anything else. And you're willing to give your life to him. You consider him worth more than anything. Your first step today is to simply say, I I want that. And if that's you, I'm not out to embarrass you. I just want to ask that you'd raise your hand so that I can pray for you after the service and we can connect. If that's you, you just let me know. Thank you. And then for the the rest of us, I just want to ask if there's anything in your life that you're carrying with you, but you know God has asked you to leave it behind. Maybe you walked for a season leaving it behind, but if you're honest, you went back and got it. But you know it's something God has asked you to leave behind. And you can sense the Holy Spirit letting you know right now, hey, that, that's not freedom. That's a weight that you're carrying with you. This is a race that we are in to run, to honor Jesus, to glorify him. There's no time, there's no room, there's no energy to be wasted on an unnecessary weight. And you need to let that go. Then, then you do that today as we worship Maybe there's something in your life that you need to let go of. You don't even know how to let go of it. Spend some time telling God that. Ask Him to help you release it. And remember, repentance is changing your mind. It's turning away. So repentance is not this moment. 
where you decide to do that. It's the moment where you actually do it. Maybe there's a relationship that you need to heal. Maybe there's a relationship that you need to end. Maybe there's bitterness that you need to let go of, a person you need to forgive. Maybe you just need the Holy Spirit to help you understand that you're forgiven. Maybe that's the weight you've been holding on to. But let's run without any hindrance, without anything in the way. Let's enjoy the freedom that Jesus has offered to every single one of us. Search your heart. Speak to the Holy Spirit. Allow Him to speak to you.